You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 6th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Sunday the 6th of October. This is Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, when are you too old for politics? As Bernie Sanders admits he's had a heart attack at a campaign rally, we examine whether the role of president is more suited to an endurance athlete. Also coming up, why voters in Kosovo are fed up with their politicians. Political leaders normally pay for making life more expensive for their country's people, but acting Prime Minister Ramush Haradinaj has made the tariff policy he masterminded a feature of his campaign. 100% Kosovo is the slogan of his AAK party. More from our man in the Balkans a little later. Plus, we go through the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to Studio One at Midori House in London. It's Emma Nelson here. And with me today for the next half hour to discuss the weekend news is a writer, entrepreneur, communications expert, all-round brilliant woman, Julia Hobsbawm. Welcome back. Welcome back into the studio, Julia. Good morning. Is that your inducement to get up early is to call your guests brilliant it women? Is, it I is. I accept. Hello. <laughs> Anything to get you in through the doors. Uh, let's have a look at Bernie Sanders this week. He says he feels fine after leaving hospital following a heart attack earlier this week. The Democratic presidential candidate complained of chest pains at a campaign event. Mr Sanders, who's 78, had two stents fitted to remove a blockage in one of his arteries. We have been assured, however, that the rest of his arteries are absolutely fine. Julia, the fact that we are being given reassurance about the condition of a presidential candidate's arteries, it's not a great state of affairs, is it? Well, if you were a campaign manager, you'd say that the optics were not great on this. Um, I mean, 78 is just not young, is it? So the combination of requiring stents, which is quite common in a lot of people, um, but nevertheless, the, the two together. I mean, I suppose it raises, doesn't it, the question about how old is too old? And, you know, especially in a world where... The, the the generations are being crowded out. You know, we've got something called Generation Alpha. I don't know if you've actually heard of Generation Alpha, but, you know, some of these people in this generation haven't yet been born. They will have all been born by 2022. And then you go back to the old baby boomers who now seem very, very old. And, and I, so I suppose there's a sort of bigger question, really, which is, you know, which generation should be the political leadership. Um, this is bad for Bernie, that's for sure. It is bad for Bernie, but great for his cardiologist. And the interesting thing about, you know, when is too old? Um, a lot of people say that there, beca- there, come, there comes a problem when too many members of one sort, one generation, especially an older generation, are those who are in power. And if we just look at the United States at the moment, the president is 73. Nancy Pelosi is what? She's 78. But boy, she's not showing one second of that age, is she? This idea that although they have wisdom, whether they have generational understanding exactly. is a problem. I mean, I would describe myself as an equalist. What I mean by that is I believe in the network science that says you need equal difference. You need diversity, proper diversity of perspective and background and age. And so any demographic that's quite kind of limited and myopic, I think, is a problem. 
you're raising the point about Pelosi's got vigour and vim and doesn't appear to be somebody that's about to keel over requiring stents. And that is an issue more with older older people, but not really. I mean, anybody can suddenly be stopped in their, in their tracks. One thing that uh, people have suggested, though, is that it's it's the elephant in the room that we have Joe Biden. He's not young. Some people have said he's a bit too old for doing it. And who is actually going to stand up and turn around to Donald Trump and say, President Trump, you're 73. OK, you wrote your own health um, brief, which said that he was the fittest president ever to, get to take office. But it, who is actually going to turn around to say to Bernie Sanders, come on, you're not up to this anymore. You've got to take it easy. Well... I think that's the question about taking it easy in pace. I mean, I'm a I'm a woman in my mid-50s and I'm not a politician, but I know I have to pace myself. And in fact, I think it's a really valid conversation to have about limits. I think it's quite an old, outdated um, behaviour to be um, male or female kind of virile and, you know, always on and up at four in the morning and not needing any sleep. And so that is an interesting question because in a, in a way it calls into question judgment. You know, what is Bernie Sanders' judgment if he goes into denial and says, I'm just going to pop back? And funnily enough, before they'd announced it was a heart attack, I was looking at the tweets and the tweets were coming from Bernie Sanders' tweet feed going, I feel fiddly-dee, everything is great and you think well it obviously isn't great so 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 the judgment question linked to the pacing yourself question i think i think it's really interesting and one thing i've always wondered is that let's say i mean i hope to bring in the issue of brexit in too early into into the into our sundays because it, it, it has to rear its, <laughs> it's ugly be head. Done. every single day we have to deal with it um but a lot of the people who were working on the uh brexit strategy and actually a lot of the people who've been in the brexit politicians they're very very young and many of them don't have that political or um, social or, or historical perspective, which explains why we went into the European Union and why the European Union was founded in the first place. And I wonder sometimes whether history moves a little bit too quickly nowadays. Yeah. That we are very, very eager to forget, start again, and we just don't get why we are where we are. Well, I... I think about that a lot and give quite a lot of talks around around the world about um, the sort of human in the machine age and one of the things is speed and scale and that loss of historical perspective and just to give it a different context the um, the Boeing disaster of the um, of the Max 8 jets where two aeroplanes went down and crashed and killed everybody on board the root cause of that was sort of technology training but also experience. And there was one jet um, that didn't crash. And that was because an older pilot hitched a, a ride on a Max jet. Apparently you can do that. It's a perk of being a pilot. You can hitch a ride in the cockpit. And the malfunctioning software began to malfunction. And the inexperienced pilots who hadn't had adequate training and who were very, very young didn't know what to do and the plane was saved by that older pilot who had a different kind of training who had different experience who had more flight years and so that's an interesting uh you know tick in the box in favor of the olders 
the elders, they have a wisdom, they have an institutional knowledge, and the young people, as you say, they just don't. Well, let's move on to someone who has got flight years, Her Majesty the Queen. She's in the papers again, or rather her potential involvement in the Brexit debate could uh, could rear its ugly head, because whether they want it or not, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has reportedly said he wants to stay in Number 10 Downing Street, whether a vote of no confidence is issued against him or not. Sack me if you dare is reportedly his tactic, implying that it would indeed take the Queen to get him to go, even if fellow members of Parliament decide that they want him to get out in order to make sure Brexit is accomplished by October the 31st. This is a story in the Sunday Times, Julia. Tell us a little bit more about what the arguments are and why we're going to be carrying Boris Johnson out of the door feet first. It's a fascinating story, Emma. Um, This is one particular take on the Brexit um, drama, psychodrama, political uh, agony that's dominating, of course, all the papers globally still. Um, We're kind of reaching endgame. 31st of October is a deadline and it's increasingly been seen as the deadline um, with the March deadline having, having been missed. And so... Uh, as as your listeners will know, there's been an epic struggle within Parliament um, to to move the goalposts to not make this the final um, deadline. But if uh, if a vote of no confidence is called in Boris Johnson, which is quite possible, then theoretically he would need to leave in order to have a caretaker parliament and so on. And he is briefing his people are briefing. The Sunday papers are still a very good um, old-fashioned example of poison being dripped in the ear of journalists. And so the briefing has been that Boris Johnson will still not go. And and what matters about all of this is that for a, for a nation that doesn't actually have a written constitution, we are clearly having a constitutional crisis. And the epicentre of that constitutional crisis, um, beyond even the Supreme Court, is Her Majesty the Queen. And I think it is absolutely inevitable that she will have to intervene publicly and break with every single tradition going. Although it is true, as the um, Sunday Times has pointed out, that the last time a monarch sacked a prime minister was in 1834 when William IV was uh, dismissed Lord Melbourne. So it is possible. Um, But I don't think she will dismiss the prime prime minister. And so um, this is all part of an epic battle between leave and remain. Um, and we will see uh, who prevails. Indeed. And what uh, what always astonish what a lot of people kind of forget is that at the end of this, half of the country will lose. Yes, yes. Although just going back a minute to your point about the Queen, I mean, I think the Queen is the strong and stable figure when all faith has been lost in every other kind of authority. Um, even if people are, you know, Republican and don't particularly like the monarchy, she is respected, she is valued. And uh, I think we're going to feel quite grateful that we have a Queen um, when push comes to shove. You're listening to the Monocle House View. I'm joined in the studio by Julia Hobsbawm. And we head now to Kosovo, where there's an election being held this weekend. But the Prime Minister's been called in for questioning by a war crimes tribunal. The government's imposed a 100% tariff on imports from its neighbours. And young people are leaving in droves if they can navigate serious visa restrictions. Well, that's the background to today's election. Prosperity failed to follow Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence from Serbia 11 years ago. Monocle's man in the Balkans, Guy Delorney, unpicks the problem. 
Here at Mitched Pub in the centre of Pristina, it's hard to tell that a rather one-sided trade war has been raging for months. The beer and burgers are flowing as freely as usual, but this place and its customers have felt the effects of the 100% tariff that Kosovo imposed on Serbian imports last November. The pub's owner, Alban Ibrahimi, says that ordinary people are paying the price for the dispute between Pristina and Belgrade. Just yesterday, for example, I was going around the supermarket and I saw all of these products from Serbia again being imported as they used to be. The only difference is the price. So the local customer is the one that gets all the burden from all of, all of these tariffs. Everybody with a common sense knows that the tariffs should go. That doesn't mean anything on the situation that we are currently in, in politics side, because I think that the main political actors are misusing the situation just to show who has larger teeth and who can bite more. Political leaders normally pay for making life more expensive for their country's people, but acting Prime Minister Ramush Haradinaj has made the tariff policy he masterminded a feature of his campaign. 100% Kosovo is the slogan of his AAK party, and the policy is played well with voters who feel it's the best bet for pressuring Serbia into recognising Kosovo. Mr Haradinaj told me that he's committed to maintaining tariffs despite international objections. The way out of where we are, it's a comprehensive agreement on recognition between Serbia and Kosovo that would resolve not only the dispute on the latest decision of Kosovo's government, the tariffs, but every other dispute between two nations that uh, we are neighbours. Yes, we are ready to stand for ourselves forever. We have no choice, no alternative. And that's despite any pressure from Washington or Brussels or the individual member we, states? We respect this pressure. We welcome it. However, where is the solution? It's possible to crush Kosovo. It's a small nation. But is that the solution? No. In June, Kosovo and its allies marked the 20th anniversary of the arrival of NATO peacekeepers. 20 years later, I think you have done a fine job of winning the peace. But Bill Clinton wasn't the only blast from the past over the summer. In July, a war crimes court in The Hague summoned Ramush Haradinaj. Prosecutors wanted to question him over his role as a commander of the Kosovo Liberation Army in the late 1990s. That triggered his resignation as Prime Minister and Sunday's election. In other places, a Prime Minister suspected of war crimes would face a ballot box wipeout. But in Kosovo, it's different. James Kerr-Lindsay is a Balkans specialist at the London School of Economics. The fact that he has been called before the tribunal is something that to, to many Kosovo um, citizens, Kosovo Albanians, is seen as a deep injustice. Um, the big thing for them is that this is seen as somehow calling into question Kosovo's right to exist. This idea that, you know, what the leaders were doing during the war um, was legitimate. They were fighting a campaign against Serbian oppression. Uh, they should not be held accountable for this. And the fact that he is a hero of this conflict has been pulled before the court uh, to answer questions is seen by many as, 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 as deeply unfair. Mr. Haradinaj's political nemesis is another former KLA commander, Hashim Thaci. The president's PDK has been the senior party in coalition governments for more than a decade. 
but plenty of people are fed up with these former national heroes. They've failed to bring the prosperity they promised when Kosovo unilaterally declared independence from Serbia 11 years ago. That could turn voters towards Kosovo's oldest party, the LDK. Its leader, Vyosa Osmani, is hoping to become the first female prime minister. And the Albanian nationalist movement Vetevan Dosia is pitching itself as the solution to systemic corruption. Speaking to people from Kosovo, you know, they feel deeply aggrieved at the way that Kosovo society has evolved. They're very unhappy with the political situation. Uh, they believe that corruption is rampant and rife, uh, that this needs to be tackled. Um, there's also very, very severe questions about the state of the economy, uh, that, you know, that there are problems that exist there that people feel need to be addressed. And they don't feel that the existing political parties and political constellation has been dealing with it. Fixing relations with the European Union will be top of the list for the new government. The tariffs have torpedoed one of the EU's main foreign policy initiatives, normalisation talks between Belgrade and Pristina. That's hit the chances of Kosovo gaining visa-free travel to the EU, never mind membership talks. Ricardo Seri is the head of the European Integration Section at the EU mission in Kosovo. Well, in its relations with the EU, it has been quite uh, quite a problem. They believe that Kosovo has been mistreated by Serbia, preventing Kosovo, for example, to become members of uh, international organization. Interpol was the latest example, following which... Kosovo, the government decided to introduce those tariffs. It seems to me they've backed themselves into a bit of a corner here with no obviously elegant way of getting out of it. What can the EU counsel Kosovo to do now? Well, as I said, the, the, the position that Kosovo should take at this stage in order to, for the dialogue to, to start again is to, to leave the tariffs. Serbia will not engage in a dialogue as long as the tariffs are, are, are there. The election could be a chance for a reset on tariffs and relations with Brussels and Belgrade or it could produce a government committed to continuing an attritional grind. The post-election coalition negotiations will be more vital than ever in setting Kosovo's direction of travel. For Monocle, in Pristina, I'm Guy Delaunay. Thank you very much indeed, Guy. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson. It's 9.17 here in London. Now, it can take a while when you're in a new job to settle in, especially if you're in a new city away from your family. Now, most organisations will offer either an apartment or a hotel room, but the newly appointed European Commission President-elect Ursula von der Leyen has shown real commitment to her job. She set up her own private rooms inside the Commission's Brussels headquarters. And when I mean private rooms, I probably mean room, measuring a cosy 25 square metres just a few steps away from her office. Well, to discuss this and the lodging requests of some other prominent figures, I was joined in the studio by Marie Billon, who's a correspondent for French language media, and Carol Walker, the presenter and political journalist. Well, she's known for that. I mean, she did that when she was working at the uh, Defence Ministry uh, in uh, in Germany. So it has the, you know, the uh, the idea that it's going to be less expensive for the taxpayer if she doesn't have an apartment or a rent and a flat, uh, hotel flat, I don't know how you say it in English, like uh, Juncker, 
is doing is still doing or used to do basically and uh, the, the fact that she will be basically on hand any, any time of the day of course there's the idea also that she's you know staying I mean will she when will she go out when will she see the light of day if she uh, stays in her office and just go along the corridor to go to bed will she be able to you know go and have a meal out with uh, with colleagues because we know that socializing is also very important in any kind of job and testing the waters with other people even informally is very important for her job as well. So Carol do you think we should be sending Ursula von der Leyen um, vitamin D tablets to try and help her from her exposure from, from the sunlight? Well she probably does need to get out and this idea of being on call 24 hours a day sounds like an absolute nightmare but of course she is saying that she's also going to be travelling back to her main residence in Hanover and of course she's got a husband and seven children so maybe in part this is an idea that she needs um, Frankly, a if little I had seven bit children, of a breather from them. Yeah, I'd well. I'd, 25 metres would be, you know, heaven, <laughs> frankly. Absolutely. But I think it's it's worth um, pointing out that she's not the only person who, who does this. We've had lots of incidences here in the UK of MPs sleeping in their offices. Um, there was a big scandal over MPs' uh, expenses uh, nine or ten years ago. And a lot of MPs then were uh, no longer allowed to claim an overnight allowance for staying in London. And of course, they represent um, constituencies and often have uh, offices and families and homes in the areas that they represent. Um, um, but they were they were then not allowed to claim overnight expenses in London. And a lot of them were caught out sleeping in their offices, including the housing minister at the time, who was also responsible for homelessness, Grant Shapps. Uh, and he said that it was simply impractical for him to get back to his constituency and then come back the next day. And indeed, the houses of parliament authorities had to write to MPs saying, um, guys, it's not actually in, it's a bit of a breach of health and safety rules. You shouldn't really be sleeping in your offices. A few weeks ago, we had the Journée du Patrimoine, so people were able to go to the Elysée Palace and, and other, other places and visit it. And people were absolutely flabbergasted when they saw one of the uh, living room in the Elysée Palace, there's many of them, uh, one which is called the uh, Salon uh, Pompadour, from the, the name of a mistress of a form of a uh, old king, basically. And it used to be very Rococo style, so lots of, you know, velvet and flowers and and golden thingy and all that. And in the middle of that, they just took out the uh, the chairs and the table, uh, but the Macron decided to put a very, uh, very, you know, high-tech sofa with a TV and with a, a, a table for cocktails. And behind, you can see, instead of a very, you know, uh, country side uh, landscape painting that would have been there they have a very modern art uh, I don't I can't remember I which one it Miro. is Miro that's yeah. it yes well, it's, basically it's not the Miro but may I say it from a perspective of style it's vile <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not picturesque let's say like, let's put it like that and that was, of course, only an opinion voiced, not a statement of fact. There was Marie Billon, uh, journalist for French language media, and Carol Walker, the presenter and political journalist. You're listening to the Sunday View, the Sunday House View here on Monocle 24. Julia Hobsbawm joins me in the studio in a moment to go through the newspapers. The Monocle Weekly, our original Sunday show, brings you the best interviews with the writers, artists, thinkers and innovators that shape our times. Also featuring fearless presenters. It's not illegal, but it does have an effect. Uh oh. 
<laughs> Are you ready for this, Tom? I could do with some stimulation and some relaxation. How traumatised am I going to be? How much of this do we need to drink to get an effect? All of it. Who ask the probing questions? What is the kinkiest animal? The man- That's pretty kinky. Headless thrusting. Head- and a good old-fashioned star turn or two, just for good measure. We had a small editorial conference today where everyone was going, what do you think of Kylie's concert? When did you go? When are you going? What's so, happening? Yeah, I heard I you guys had yet, a debrief. So, yeah, we've had a today. debrief. That's the Monocle Weekly. Sundays at 12 noon, London time, on Monocle 24. You wouldn't want to finish your week without it. The Baguette is fighting back with artisanal valour. Meet Paris baker Christophe Vasseur. He runs successful corner shop Dupin et Desidées and knows how to make the perfect loaf. A top quality bread is always brown, dark brown. You push the door of bakery, if everything is, is brown to, uh, to dark brown, it's perfect. If it's all white, forget it, run away. The secret to baking bread. Playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Let's have a look at the Sunday papers. Julia Hobsbawm, let's move immediately to this story about uh, a US diplomat's wife who has left the United Kingdom following the death of a young motorcyclist in the UK. Um, the implication is that Jen, the, diplomatic, uh, the diplomat's wife was in some way involved in this crash and has left. Yeah, this is a really difficult story because diplomacy um, can get stretched to the limit, uh, but a little known law is that if you are the family of a diplomat or a diplomat, you really have something called diplomatic immunity, which means you actually can break the law in any way and not be prosecuted. And um, everyone's couching their words quite carefully. But basically, the allegation is that a wife the wife of a serving diplomat outside um, a, a, a spy base in Norfolk um, came out at night on the wrong side of the road and killed a 19-year-old on the correct side of the road. And that um, Woody Johnson, the US ambassador to the, the UK, wrote a sort of condolence letter, not an apology letter, so an acknowledgement that there was an incident in which this alleged person, you know, had been involved, but she then left despite the fact that the police were questioning her. And I mean, I've got to say this stinks. You know, I do feel sorry for the Foreign Office. I do feel particularly sorry for the Foreign Office dealing with America at the moment because, you know, I think we can all imagine what Donald Trump's reaction will be, protect America first. But it is a ghastly, ghastly story. It's a terrible story insofar as you, you mentioned quite rightly the difficulty that the Foreign Office uh, experiences here because this is a tiny drop in a much, much, much bigger ocean for them. But for the mother involved, um, the mother of the young man who died, she has made a very human appeal to this woman who has gone and has said, as a mother to another, come back, please, face what has happened. And it suddenly th- made me think, well, actually, diplomacy cannot always work when you actually have the power of one human being to another. That's what, it's, it's, it's sort of exposed a weakness in diplomacy. It, it exposes a huge weakness. It exposes a fault line that can't really be mended. Uh, she won't come back. 
Obviously, she won't come back because, in theory, she could then be prosecuted. Um, the Americans will resist any any reparation, um, and there will be no justice for this family. There'll be some media, um, but it won't be enough. And I think what that does to trust is a is is not great. Let's talk a little bit more about trust and trust in a politician, something which has been stretched to breaking point in the last couple of years. Uh, there's a presenter in the United Kingdom called Emily Maitlis. She hosts a programme called Newsnight, which specialises in long-form interviews with politicians. And she's given a talk saying that um, she has this huge issue nowadays that politicians will say one thing to her on camera and another off camera. And she says she's finding it increasingly hard to get an answer out of out of politicians, in fact, out of anyone. What's happened to questions and answers, Julia? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And actually, there's also a sort of pop is eating itself story behind it, which is Emily Maitlis has written a memoir and she was at a literary festival. So she was being interviewed about herself as an interviewer. So that's another line that's been breached. But she did say something fascinating, which is that during Guess What? The Brexit, she interviewed a politician who said to the camera without flinching that Theresa May's deal long time ago would get through and immediately when this politician came off air that same politician said that the their statement was completely opposite they said the deal will never get through and she was shocked by the cavalier way in which politicians are no longer even trying to tell the truth what they're doing is giving out messages for particular audiences in a particular timed way and i've i've got to say that is clearly true there is no accuracy anymore um it makes a journalist's job incredibly difficult well, yes. I mean, I wouldn't put the journalists first in this, actually. I would put the, the, the audience. I mean, I think we've got 15 years after Facebook, you know, the mother of all conundrums about all the wonderful things that this connectedness, um, hyper-connectedness has brought about. But one of the things it's ushered in is um, speed and scale, which is the enemy of truth and accuracy. And so these agendas feed off that moment where what I'm saying to you now into the microphone um, is the only truth there is in this in this zone. And uh, I could be lying, but you haven't got the time to find out. And uh, But luckily, you're using slightly more complicated words than Donald Trump. And many people are saying that <laughs> Donald Trump is, is responsible for the infantile infantilization of language, making things too simple. Um, well, I'm writing a book about simplicity, so I've, I've got lots of views on it. I, I don't think you can blame Donald Trump for that. I think that Donald Trump is a symptom of an era. I think that era has promoted him um, and the medium that really made him who who he is is of course television um i think that there is a difference between simplicity and simplistic um but i think that it is clear that donald trump favors the latter julia hobsman thank you so much for joining me in the studio today that's all we have time for for today's program thanks to our supervising producer ben ryland our researcher naomi potter and our studio manager louis allen from me emma nelson goodbye thanks for listening